So, last weekend, my son, Rafi, who's 10, back in that room, he went to uh, spend the weekend in New York City with his aunt, Reverend Cheryl, and they went to New York City to the New York City Public Library, you know, that great big library that's so awesome? And they went there because there was a big celebration happening that day. There was a celebration, it was 50 years anniversary for one of the most beloved children's book characters that has ever been published, a children's book character named Encyclopedia Brown. Has anybody heard of that? Yeah, how many of you have read that or read it to your children? They're so great, aren't they? Our son loves them, and we read them at night. And what's so great about Encyclopedia Brown, each of the books has like 10 short stories, and each of the short stories is a little mystery. And Encyclopedia Brown is the one that figures out the mystery. He figures out small mysteries from his friends, or big mysteries with robbers, thieves, and he helps the, the local police, and he helps his father, who's a private investigator. And all the crimes that they all miss the solution to, Encyclopedia Brown figures it out. And what's fun about the books is that at the end of the chapter, they don't tell you the solution. They just tell you he figured it out, and then you have to figure it out, and then they give you a page to go to in the very back of the book, and they give you the solution. So, for instance, in one of the stories, there was a guy who was claiming to be kidnapped and he went to the police and the police and his mom and encyclopedia and all these people were around listening to the story of this guy who claimed to be kidnapped and the guy was saying I was kidnapped and put into a room and it was a room with no windows so I couldn't escape and I tried to escape in any way I could think of I even tried to take the hinges off the door I tried to escape I could not find a way to escape And he's telling a story, and later on in the story, he says, when the kidnappers came, they opened the door into the hallway and they stepped in, and somehow he was able, the kidnapped person was able to overpower them and escape and leave. And he finishes the story and everybody's stymied. Who are the kidnappers? And the police don't know who the kidnappers are, and everyone's looking around, and Encyclopedia says, I can solve this crime. There were no kidnappers because this man was not kidnapped. And then you have to sit and figure it out. So Rafi and I will sit there and we'll read and we'll try to figure it out. And then you turn to page 93 and then it gives you the solution. The solution in this case was Encyclopedia figured it out because the man said that he tried to take the hinges off the door, but later he said that when the robber or the kidnappers came, they opened the door into the hallway, which meant away from him, which meant the hinges were actually on the other side. He deduced. What he did, and what other great detectives, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, what they all did (laughs) is they looked at the surface of things and said, there's something not quite right here. There's something that's not fitting. And on the surface, people look at it and say, hmm, I don't know. I, I guess it's just the way it is. But they wouldn't be satisfied with that. They went deeper and said, there must be something else here. Now, I think we all could develop a little bit of our own interior spiritual encyclopedia Brown or Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys in our life. 
Because sometimes there's the life that we want, and in centers like this, in places like this, we talk about the life we want, the money we want, the career we want, the health we want, the relationships we want, the whatever we want, and then there's the life we have. And sometimes they don't always match. Have you noticed that? They don't always match up perfectly. And so rather than just be satisfied with that and say, well, that's just the way it is, if we develop our own spiritual interior Encyclopedia Brown, then we can begin to see what is the difference here. Where is the difference between the two, what we say we want and what is? Because I believe we were all born with amazing possibility and potential. Possibility and potential. How could we not be? We were created by life itself, capital L, life. That's not for loser, that's for life, by the way. <laughs> I'm not calling anybody here a loser. In fact, it's just the opposite. We were created by life itself. That is all infinite possibility, all potential. And yet, we don't always realize our own potential and possibility. So we end up with a life that is less than what we say that we want. So why is that? That's what Encyclopedia Brown would ask. So that's what Reverend Joel is going to ask. Why is that? You know, I've worked with people, workshops and classes and talks for many years all around the country, thousands of people, and I've kind of put it into four categories of what stops us, what we allow ourselves to be stopped from our potential with. And the first thing that comes up is just plain old excuses. Does anybody here have any excuses for anything? Yeah. Let me see. Let me just rattle off a few. Uh, I don't have enough money. Anybody have that one? Okay. Um, I'm too old or too young? I'm too tall or too short? Um, I've, uh, I'll disappoint some family members. Anybody got that one? Or my friends? I don't know how. That's a good excuse, right? I don't know how. It seems too big. We got a lot of excuses. And that stops us. And the way we get past excuses is by realizing something very important. That we have to want what we want more than all the reasons why it can't happen. Because if you want what you want, you're not going to find reasons to not get it. You're going to find reasons to get beyond what is stopping you. And in fact, you're going to discover that those reasons that were stopping you were actually the very things that you needed to create the momentum to go forward and get the thing that it is that you wanted. Another way we stop ourselves is through a little old thing called, it's a P word. You know what it is? Procrastination. Procrastination. Anybody here ever procrastinate? One or two of you. The rest of you are procrastinating answering that question. I got it. I got it. I looked it up. I was just reading a book about procrastination recently, and this is how they define it. Listen to this. Procrastination is needless, voluntary delay. Needless, voluntary delay. Now, sometimes we have delays, right? So if you're doing something and the school calls and, and your kid is sick and you got to go pick up your kid, that's not needless and that's not voluntary. So that kind of delay does not count. 
But many of our delays don't fall into that kind of category. They are needless, right? And they are voluntary. Nobody's putting a gun to our head telling us that we have to sit around and, and watch uh, a uh, International House Hunters marathon on HGTV. <laughs> I see you all have done that as well. But the thing about procrastination is, is that procrastination answers our short-term need. Oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I'm hungry. I'm this, I'm that. And we have a short-term need. But that stops us from our long-term vision, from realizing our potential. So that's another way we stop ourselves. A third way, oh, this is a good one, is we avoid making a decision. We go out of our way to avoid making certain kinds of decisions. Now, wait, I know if I asked you where you wanted to eat today, many of you would just decide like that. But in big life decisions, we don't always want to make those decisions. We want to be pushed into a decision by people around us or by life. I'm not talking the little decisions like, do you prefer Coke or Pepsi? I'm talking, should I move? Should I get a new job? What should I do with my time? Time management, what do I want in life? These are all big life decisions. And actually, I just remembered my favorite quote from one of my favorite books, The Power of Decision, where Raymond Charles Barker said, indecision is actually a person's de uh, decision to fail. So decision is an important way forward, but we stop ourselves through indecision. And the fourth one is another good one, and it's called waiting for permission. Waiting for permission. Let me tell you a story. On Halloween, which was Thursday, I was talking to um, a mother of two kids, and she was telling me a little story. She has two kids, one of whom is kind of a rule breaker, and one of whom is a rule follower. And this little rule follower, her son, um, he's the kind of kid that won't do anything unless he gets permission for it first. He won't watch TV till he gets permission. He won't eat sweets or whatever till he gets permission first. So on Thanksgiving, um, Thanksgiving Halloween, on Halloween, the town we live in, the downtown business area closes and uh, for, for cars. And all the businesses and stores come out and they have lots of candy and it's filled with thousands and thousands of kids. It's chaos. And you're, you're trying to find your kid and you're going from booth to booth and all of this and they got music and it's, it's a, a chaos thing. So she took her kids to this Halloween celebration. And you know, if you're a parent, you know what happens. In a second, you turn around and your kid is not there, right? And you panic. They look around for 10 or 15 minutes, can't find the kid. Finally, they hear over the intercom, will the parents of so-and-so please come to a particular place to pick up your son? They go over there. What they find out later is that the booth next to where they were standing were, they were handing out cookies. And the son thinks, I want a cookie. So he walked over here to get a cookie, and in the chaos of everything, he turned around and everything was swept away. They couldn't see him, he couldn't see them, and he's looking for them, and that gets him further away and all of that. So they're going to the place where the intercom said to go pick up the kid, and they come up to the place, and there's the little boy sobbing, 
scared to death, holding his cookie like this, just crying. And they come over and they hug him, and the first words he says to them is, do I have permission to eat the cookie? (laughs) Through all the myths of getting swept away and everything, he held that cookie and he would not eat it until he got permission. What I have found is many adults never lose that. We are waiting for something or someone or somewhere we want the skies to part and the sun to shine and say, you now have permission to follow your dreams. But it doesn't work that way. We're like sometimes, some of us are like the little kid holding the cookie crying saying, I don't have the life I want because I'm waiting for permission. Can I please have it, please? And life is waiting for you saying, let's have it already. Eat the cookie. (laughs) Eat the cookie. I'm here to give you permission. You all, anybody in this room, anybody listening to these words, you all have permission now to pursue the life that you want. So those are ways that we stop ourselves. Excuses, procrastination, avoiding making a decision, waiting for permission. There are many others as well. Those just happen to be the four that I see over and over and over again. So the question becomes, what do we do? Here's the life we want. Here's the life we have. What do we do to bring those two realities together? Well, there's an interesting first thing that you should do. And it comes from this book, The Gift of Adversity by Norman Rosenthal. Something very counterintuitive. One of the things he says to do in this book is to write down your feelings. How is that going to get me what I want? He says, write down your feelings. There is research, clinical research, that shows when we write down our feelings, it actually clears the way for us to move forward. He talks about a study that was done by a college, some researchers, and they worked with a group of people who had just been let off from a large computer company. This was a large group of people that had just been laid off. And they weren't just laid off, they were laid off suddenly out of the blue and They were not laid off in a nice way. It was one of those layoffs where the security guards come and escorts each person out as if they're criminals, that kind of thing. So people had a lot of feelings about this particular layoff, even more than they normally would. And the company had hired an outplacement company to work with all of the people that were laid off so that they could find new jobs. So what this research group did is they took this group of laid off employees and they divided them into two groups. In one group, they asked all the people in this group to simply write down what their tasks were in their job. What are your tasks? And that's it. In the other group, they asked them to do something interesting. They said for four days, Just write down your feelings about your job and your feelings about being laid off. It can be long or it can be short. And that's what they did. The outplacement firm got the same amount of calls and interviews for both groups. What they found is that this group, the group whose only difference was that they just wrote down, for four days they just wrote down their feelings about their job and being laid off, by far got jobs faster than this group. 
So they studied it further, and what they discovered is that this group, by simply writing down for four days, had so much less anger and hostility about what had just happened to them, about this adversity that had just happened to them. So when they would go into job interviews, they were friendlier. They were happier. They weren't pissed off. Oh. <laughs> they weren't angry. But then they took this study a little further. Oh, and what's interesting is some of the people some of the people wrote long journal entries, and some of the people wrote one or two sentences a day, and that's it. Then they took, did something interesting. They took it even further, and they took all of the things that these people had written in this group, and they ran them in a computer linguistic program because they wanted to see if there were any themes or words that, were kind of, that came up that were common to this group because they wanted to identify why did this group get jobs so much faster. And you might be surprised. These were the words that came out. The words that were um, common when predicting change in behavior, the, these were the words. Realized or realization. Understood. Appreciated for the first time. Discovered. They were able, just through the act of writing something down, writing down their feelings, to begin to transmute them into something that was a stepping stone. That's fascinating. The next thing you should do is what they call in the business world is um, pre-commit. Pre-commit. That means before you do anything, before you take any actions, beyond writing down your feelings, before you take any actions, you pre-commit. You say, this is going to be the time when I'm going to bring my vision and my life together. You pre-commit. Instead of just being interested in change, you pre-commit to the change. What's the difference? When you're interested in change, you're on the fence. That is when you are most susceptible to all those things we just talked about. Excuses, procrastination, avoiding making a decision. You are on the fence. You're, you're interested, and you say, yeah, I am interested in making a change in my life, but that's different than saying, I am making a change in my life. When you are committed, now you are moving forward in a very powerful way. In fact, when you are committed to something, then you take on an attitude, which I think are three of the most beautiful words on the spiritual path. When you want something, when you're moving towards something, these are the three words. Whatever it takes. Say it. That means no matter what comes up in your way, when you want something, you're going towards something, and a big old dragon comes in front of you, might be a job loss, it might be uh, a drama of some sort, it might be car tires blowing out on the highway, whatever it is, you say, this is not going to stop me. Whatever it takes, this means I'm going to use this. I'm going to turn this around, just like the, the researchers said. I'm going to turn this around so that this becomes the thing that gives me momentum, not deflates my tires. This is going to propel me forward, not keep me stuck. That's a whole different attitude, whatever it takes. The next thing is to prioritize some goals. I know some of this is, is you know, we hear these words, but until we actually do it, it becomes theoretical. That's when we're living in potential instead of living the potential. Realizing goals. I wrote this in, 
my book about goal setting, I said, I believe that life wants more for us than we often want for ourselves. And as we clarify our goals and then hold the positive thoughts and take the positive actions toward these goals, life will see our commitment and match it. Sometimes as you take daily steps towards your goals, you might notice ideas that come to you out of the blue or a surprise email or a call from someone who wants to help you or some other experience that we call a coincidence or sometimes even deny that it happened. When you help yourself, you are making the way for life to help you. So what we have to do is we have to clarify so that we know when we're going and where we're going. Setting goals is essential. You don't set 10 or 15 goals. One goal, two goals, three goals, big goals that you're moving toward so that you can harness your energy toward those few things. After that, the next step is take a step. Just start. Every artist's instructions, every psychologist, every self-help group, every business course, every in whatever field you look at, the thing that they say to do is actually just begin. Even if you're beginning with the wrong step, it doesn't matter. Now you're in motion. Isaac Newton is the one that said, things in motion stay in motion. Things at rest stay at rest. So the idea in starting is just to get you in motion so that now you're in motion, now you can be flexible, and if you're going the wrong direction, now you can turn and go the right direction, but it's so much easier to do so when you've already started versus doing it from your couch. Trust me, I know, I have tried, and it does not work. Then the next thing that you do after that is what I call rinse and repeat. You know how they say that on shampoo bottles? Not that I use a lot of shampoo. Ty and I don't use a lot of shampoo. But on shampoo bottles, I'm told, my memory, if my memory serves right, it says on there, lather, rinse, and repeat. Am I right? What that means on the spiritual path is as you move forward, the rinse part is, am I going the right way? Am I doing the right thing? Does this feel good? Do I need to make adjustments? That's the rinsing part. You're going you're gonna to clean it up. Then you repeat by taking another step. Is this the right step? And you just keep moving forward that way so that you're always checking yourself, making sure that you're going the right place and you're feeling it every step of the way. If you feel like, ooh, this felt good, this felt good, this felt good, red light. Yeah, this way feels good. Then you go this way. But now you're moving and you're, you're doing it and you're taking consistent action. Next, surround yourself with supportive and inspiring people. Very important. You all are uh, supportive and inspiring people. That's why we come here. We like to surround ourselves. But the rest of the other six days of the week, surround yourself with supportive and inspiring people. The Buddha says if you want to walk to a particular place, walk with the people who are headed to that particular place. When we surround ourselves with supportive and inspiring people, what happens is we are more apt to show up, we have more fun, we're more committed, and we're going to get there faster. Those are all good reasons, I think. And then finally, cast yourself as the hero of your own story. Joseph Campbell talked about the hero's journey, and there are all the myths about the, the, 
the ordinary person that through the course of the story ends up becoming the hero of the story and the very things that that ordinary person thought were the deficits in their life ended up being the very things that they needed in order for the hero to emerge from them. The things that made them different and other people laughed at them ended up being the very things that ended up taking them all the way. That needs to become our story. See yourself as the hero of your own story. Think of your life as the hero's story. One of my favorite artist's way, um, artist's way is a, a creative process by Julia Cameron. One of my favorite exercises that she has in one of her books, I don't remember which one, she says, if you have adversity in your life, if you have anything in your life that you don't like and you're stymied by it, write a story about your life but don't do it in the first person. Put yourself as the third person. Make yourself a character in the story. And then just simply write your life as the story up to that moment. And then write the ending that that story deserves. All in the third person. When we do it in the third person, she says, we're not as emotionally involved. We can step back a little bit and be more objective. And... By stepping back, we can actually see more possibilities than we can when we're fully in it. What a simple and fabulous and powerful exercise for us to do. You are the hero of your own story. You are the heroine of your own story. And as we march forward in that way, with that as our mantle, then the two lives, the one that we want and the one that we have, start merging together. So all of these things together create a fulfilled life. And that's important. It's important for a lot of reasons. Um, in this book, The Gift of Adversity, he has a chapter in here about Viktor Frankl, the psychotherapist who was also imprisoned in the concentration camps during World War II. And Viktor Frankl, when he came out of the concentration camps, he developed a whole school of psychology <coughs> based on his experiences. And it's very powerful. And, he, and one of his great quotes is this. They, he said, and this, keep in mind, this is a man who saw probably the worst that humanity can offer. He says, everything can be taken from a man but the last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one, one's own way. Now, he said something else that was very fascinating, and I'm going to end the talk with this. He's talking about what it means to live a meaningful life, that life that we want, the life that we say that we want, that we need to be congruent and align everything in ourselves so that we get to experience it. And he says this, um, he says, as a doctor intrigued by the brain and the mind, Frankel not only rose above his setting, but made use of it, the concentration camp, to ask a key question. In dire situations, such as a concentration camp, what can a person do to keep going? The answer is to find some meaning, something that continues to make life worth living even in the face of a disaster. And Frankel had a problem with another contemporary of his, 
Freud, Sigmund Freud, because he felt that Freud's psychology meant that you focused on the problem so much that you identified with the problem. That became who you were. Frankel's philosophy, his psychology, is the exact opposite. It says here, the central thrust of his work, Frankel said, was to take a person's eyes off the problem and encourage him or her to focus on other things, things that they found exciting or inspiring, because as we fill our lives more and more with the inspired people, the inspired actions, inspired words, inspired living, then we ourselves end up living that inspired life. Like Encyclopedia Brown, who was brave enough to look at the surface of things and say, what's not right here? What's not adding up? We get to become our own inner detectives so that we can look and say, ah, that's a place where I can now bring my life into congruence with the great vision that life has in store for me. That is a great gift that life has given us the privilege of being able to do. Thank you very much. Let's get all prayerful about this. Ah, oh, thank you, life. We're going to start this prayer treatment with gratitude. Just that great gratitude that we get to be together so that we can experience the highest and greatest good. And in that place, I know that there is that one life. Some call it God and some call it good. We'll call it God the good. Life unlimited. Spirit everywhere. All powerful. There is only this. That is the truth. There is only life constantly creating, constantly emerging, constantly breathing through all of the life that it creates, including us. Life is breathing through us. Life is breathing as us. Life is breathing us. So knowing this, that our very being, our very breath is life itself. We right now, we let go of anything that stops us. We let go of anything that hinders us. We let go of anything in any way that blocks our good, that blocks the life, that vision that life has for each one of us. We let it go. Sometimes it is as simple as just letting it go. And we do that now. Now we have the freedom. Now we have the space. Now we have the vision to move forward. So we allow ourselves to walk forward with confidence because we know who we are and we know where we're going. We have our soul as a compass and it guides us and moves us forward in powerful and awesome ways. That's how we live our life from now forward. There is nothing mediocre about us. We are now plugged into that power 
And we feel it coursing through our veins so that we express the potential and possibility that we were given even before we were born. That is ours. And we claim it. And we believe it. And we allow it to be true for us. Each one of us, right here and right now. And together we say, and so it is. All together now, holding this offering in my hand, I bless it with my love. Allow it to go forth to multiply and do good. I accept the returned blessing of my generosity, knowing that I can never outgive God. God bless this center and our community, and may I be a walking example of good to the world around me. And so it is.